When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the world of the unusual, the bizarre, and occasionally the macabre. This is Beyond Reality Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's program. JV has the night off. My name is Bruce Markison. It's been a few weeks since I've been with you, but glad to have the chance to talk to you. JV is getting ready for Scaricon 2019, taking place at a new location, Rochester, New York, at the Rochester Riverside Hotel. So I'll be filling in on the program as the guest host for the next couple of nights And we've got some really interesting topics of conversation going to tell you about tonight's program in just a couple of moments. Before we get to that, though, here are some of the great ways that you can follow this program. Uh, We have a terrific website, beyondrealityradio.com. Again, that's beyondrealityradio.com. Also, we encourage you to visit our chat room and participate in the chat during the course of our two-hour show. Uh, You'll find the chat room, J.V. Johnson, on YouTube. So go to YouTube, J.V. Johnson, and participate in the chat. Great way to interact with some of the other listeners and contributors to this program. You can follow us on Facebook at Beyond Reality Radio, also on Snapchat and Instagram. A little bit later on, we'll take calls for our guests this evening We have a toll-free listener line. It's 844-687-7669. Or if you happen to um, reside in the local area, 607-282-4497. Again, the toll-free line, 844-687-7669. If you'd like to uh, follow me on Facebook, we'd love you to do that as well. Uh, about 10 months ago, started a special page called Bruce Markison's Ghostly Gallery. Uh, for those who don't know how to spell my name, which is just about everybody in American society, just put in at Ghostly Gallery on Facebook. That's just all one word, at Ghostly Gallery. Uh, it'll take you to the page. We keep you up to date on horror, sci-fi, the paranormal, uh, ghost tours that I offer, appearances on this program, all sorts of interesting stuff that we cover. Uh, We get into horror films, horror literature, comic books. Uh, It's a really fun page. We'd like you to uh, certainly visit it. And if you're interested in the material, like it as well. We're now at about 1,050 likes. We've had a nice surge in recent weeks. All right, that's enough about me. Let's talk about what's coming up on tonight's program. Our guest this evening is Lex Nover. Uh, Lex Lonehood Nover, as he's known, is the web producer for Coast to Coast AM. And he's also the author of really a fascinating new book. This is a topic that I've always wanted to delve into and going to get a chance to learn more about it tonight. The book is called Nightmare Land. It is a mind-expanding exploration of sleep disorders and unusual dream states. Uh, The full title is Nightmare Land Travels at the Borders Between Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. So we're going to get into all sorts of stuff about what happens when we go to sleep, dreams, nightmares, sleepwalking, all sorts of stuff. Uh, That'll be coming up with our guest this evening, Lex Nover. We will take calls for Lex during our second hour. Let's also give you a quick preview of what's coming up the next couple of nights as well. Um, with JV getting ready for Scaricon, I'll be filling in tomorrow night, Thursday night. And tomorrow night will be very interesting. We'll be talking to the hosts of the Holzer Files. They are Dave Schrader, Cindy Kazaa, and Shane Pittman. Uh, three people that are reopening the case files of America's first ghost hunter, the late Dr. Hans Holzer. 
It's a new show on the Travel Channel. Uh, Holzer died in 2009, but his work is being continued by some members of his family and by Dave Schrader, Cindy Kazan, and Shane Pittman. So the hosts of the new show, The Holzer Files, they'll be featured on tomorrow night's program. Friday is a best-of program. Uh, That is uh, uh, recordings of previous shows, some of the highlights from those programs. Uh, Then on Monday, I'll actually be back with you. JV will be making his way back from Rochester, so I'll fill in Monday night as well. And my guest on Monday is Maria Wheatley. She is a professional dowser. She'll discuss dowsing, ley lines, earth energies, and the long-skulled people of Stonehenge. Interesting stuff coming up. And then on Tuesday, JV's back for that show. His guest, Mr. Lobo, the mysterious host of the late-night movie program Cinema Insomnia. It's been a cult sensation for 18 years and counting. Uh, They'll be discussing what movies to watch during the Halloween season. And speaking of that, today actually marks a significant anniversary. It was on this date, 1992, that a terrific film, one of my favorites... Candyman made its debut in American theaters. Uh, The film actually opened up in Canada about a month earlier. This was September of 92. But it was mid-October of 92 that Candyman made its debut in American theaters. Didn't have really receive a lot of publicity at the time. Wasn't that well known. I happened to go to the theater. It was an opening night, but it was probably a few nights after that. And I think I was on a date and went to see the film. Absolutely loved it. You know, I've seen so many horror films that I kind of get conditioned to the frightfulness. Not too many horror movies or TV shows scare me. I can tell you, watching Candyman on the big screen, in the theater, not really knowing what to expect, not knowing much about the film going in, I was pretty darn frightened. It was Excellent. Tony Todd plays the monstrous figure of Candyman. Uh, He's terrific in the movie. Uh, There is absolutely nobody else to play Candyman in my mind. Uh, Virginia Madsen plays a college graduate student in the Chicago area. She's doing uh, research on the rather infamous Cabrini Green housing projects in Chicago. She learns about the Candyman myth, the Candyman legend, and eventually has a confrontation with Candyman. But some really frightening moments. Uh, I'll tell you, that's one terrific film. That is always appropriate uh, for the Halloween season. One other thing to mention before we get started uh, with our guests coming up after our first break, I mentioned that Scaricon 2019 is coming up. It starts this Friday night, so just a couple of nights away. Friday, October the 18th through Sunday, October the 20th at the Rochester Riverside Hotel. A number of terrific guests, including the cast of the Terrifier movies, also a reunion of the original Phantasm, a real cult classic that came out in 1979. Uh, David Naughton from An American Werewolf in London. I had a lot of fun talking to him at last year's Scaricon. Nice guy. Lots of great insights into that film and some other aspects of his career. So Scaricon is coming up 2019. Check out the Scaricon page on uh, Facebook. Also go to Scaricon.com, the website. Learn more about all the guests, all the different activities. Uh, There's all sorts of stuff. There's panels with the celebrities, chance to get autographs, chance to talk to many of these folks. There will also be a lot of vendors there with Halloween and horror and sci-fi related memorabilia. Uh, Really a great time. I won't be able to go this year because of some work commitments. I really wanted to go, but I did go last year. Uh, I've gone to, I think, the last five or six, and uh, it's always a great time. And one of the nice things about it, it's not one of these massive shows where they, you know, quickly run you through a line. You don't even get the chance to talk to the celebrity You know, they just kind of scratch out a quick autograph and then you got to move on because they have to get through everybody. This is a lot more personal. The lines are not quite as long, although, you know, there'll be decent lines for some of the bigger names. But um, most of the celebrities, you know, they're willing to talk to you. They're willing to answer questions. 
take pictures with you, and sign autographs. So it really has a nice personal touch. And there's one thing you learn about dealing with people in the world of horror. They're nothing like their on-screen personas. These people play monsters and villains and devils and vampires. But in real life, horror people, the actors, the people involved in it are just some of the nicest people you're ever going to meet in the world of film, from the world of Hollywood. Just um, so personable, so willing to talk, so grateful to meet their fans. So that's Scaricon 2019. It's coming up this weekend, October the 18th through the 20th at the Rochester Riverside Hotel. And our producer, Slick Eddie, is going, so a chance to meet him as well. And if that's not enough of an incentive, I don't know what is. All right, that's a rundown of some of the things going on this week. When we come back after our first break, we'll begin the program with our special guest. His name is Lex Nover, a web producer for Coast to Coast AM and the author of the brand new book, Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders uh, Between Sleep dreams and wakefulness our program our interview with mr nover begins in just a moment you're listening to beyond reality radio did you know that online retailers like amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day it's no joke save 40 percent, 50 percent, even 80 percent on great products and all you have to do is know about them. noodle shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way noodle shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money but give you the deals before anyone else has them all you have to do is find noodle shark on facebook search it as the noodle shark that's the noodle shark because you deserve to save too become a Shark and save. Our guest, Lex Nover. Lex has been the web producer for Coast to Coast AM, America's most popular overnight radio show since the year 2002. He was a longtime features writer for After Dark, the radio show's affiliated print magazine. Over the last 17 years, Lex's work has been read by millions of people. And he certainly earned a lot of respect for his ability to evaluate the often esoteric and complex material presented by the guests on Coast to Coast AM. He has also created several screen and stage plays and a graphic novella. And he now is out with his first nonfiction book, Nightmare Land, which is going to be the subject of conversation on tonight's program. Time to welcome to the Beyond Reality Radio Airwaves Lex Nover. Lex, welcome to the program. How are you tonight? Good, good. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Bruce. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. This is a fascinating topic, and I'm glad that our producer, Slick Eddie, came up with this idea because sleep and nightmares and dreams and sleepwalking, this has always fascinated me. And, you know, I hear bits and pieces about, you know, what dreams might mean, what sleepwalking might signify. But tonight, we'll actually, I'll actually have a chance to hear from an expert on the subject, and we certainly appreciate that opportunity. But let's begin, Lex. Where did this idea for this book come from? Why did you want to write so extensively about this topic? Well, I was delving into this idea of unusual states and phenomena that are associated with sleep and dreams, and sometimes adjacent to sleep and dreams, and what started to solidify was this idea of mixed brain states so that a lot of these different things that I wrote about are actually these kind of odd mixtures. You can almost think of them like cocktails of consciousness where you have different elements of the brain that are associated with being asleep, being awake, and, and dreaming. Uh, I guess sleepwalking would be a classic example of that where someone is moving about in the waking world they're they're having a certain amount of vision through their eyes and yet significant parts of their brain are actually asleep while they're they're going about maybe even driving a car so it's it's kind of a fascinating uh thing to look at and ponder was this at all motivated by your own experience? Any problems that you've had with your sleep and your sleep habits over the years? I've had a few things. I've had a couple of sleep paralysis episodes uh, and, and various things that 
some minor things, but they made me realize that people can be very uh, sheepish about about these different uh, sleep disorders that that you might have because it's it's almost as if it's out of our own control. For instance, when I was writing the book, I noticed that sometimes I would wake up and be in a diagonal position that I hadn't started out in. So even just something like that seemed relatively innocuous and yet odd. It's like, how are my legs <laughs> moving all the way in that direction? So I think with some of these more extreme sleep disorders, things like sleep paralysis where you might see a demonic being, traditionally people have been very secretive and quiet about such things, and it's only, I think, in the Internet era that there's been a lot more publicity around a lot of these things and this whole expansion of sleep science. Take, for instance, something like uh, what's called sexomnia, where people have sex in their sleep, that wasn't even recognized as an official sleep disorder until 2014, even though it's something that's probably been going on for eons. I have to admit, I'd never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it can be kind of funny in some cases and, and frightening in others, but uh, one thing I write about in my book was a case where... Uh, a woman was having um, relations with her partner, her bed partner, and she thought, oh, this is fun, and seemed to be enjoying it, but she did kind of think that he seemed a little out of it at times, mm. and then she finally verified that he was asleep because he was snoring right in the middle of the act. <laughs> so that was kind of a uh, one for the snorgasm, if you will. <laughs> Did you mean this as kind of a self-help guide, or does your scope go beyond that? Do you want to just try to also provide as much information, maybe not just for people that have had problems with sleep, but just want to learn more about the subject? I think it's probably more of the latter. I do try to include some suggestions in the chapter on nightmares, if people have recurring nightmares. And I have a chapter on lucid dreaming where I offer different tips and tricks to try to um, make that outcome more likely. But I'm I'm not a doctor by any means, so I think if people have a serious issue, they they can definitely uh, go to a, a sleep clinic, which... I didn't realize in, until I was researching it that's a huge um, expanding industry in North America. There's now like mm-hmm. 2,500 sleep clinics here. And, and what they do there is um, you usually go in overnight for um, an evaluation and they hook you up to this machine called a polysomnogram that uh, te- uh, yeah. tests different uh, functions like um, the EEG and monitors different things to detect sleep abnormalities. I went through that experience probably about 15 years ago. Uh, I'm a heavy snorer, and I was determined to be kind of borderline in terms of sleep apnea. Um, Did you yourself have a personal experience at a sleep clinic? I did not personally, but I interviewed a friend in Toronto that had had gone through it also for, for sleep apnea, and I, from what I gathered from him, a lot of people aren't too, too happy to have to wear those CPAP machines, so it's a bit of a quandary, even though they, they can help somewhat. Was, was that your experience? Yeah, it was not very comfortable. I, I'm sure that after a few nights you would get used to it, but the doctor, who was actually my next-door neighbor, and kind of a funny coincidence, he, he said, you know, I was right on the border. You know, you could use it, you could not use it. Uh, ultimately, I decided not to go with the CPAP. Um, I guess I've sort of debated whether that was the right decision. Uh, I've I've lost some weight, though, over the years, and I think that's probably helped a little bit. But, yeah, the CPAP machine can be intimidating. There's no question, especially the first time you put it on. Yeah, and I'm sure it's it's no picnic uh, going to sleep with all those electrodes <laughs> stuck right. to your brain. But um, there is one of the sleep disorders is called um, RBD or REM behavior disorder. And I was watching some videos online of uh, one of the patients, and it was like looking at something on a paranormal activity. Um, and what what that 
disorder involves. It's kind of like a funhouse mirror version of sleep paralysis. So instead of being paralyzed and awake, you're asleep and you're, you're not paralyzed, and so you're acting out your dreams. And so people can get very violent in some cases. In this video, uh, the guy was just, limbs were flying everywhere, and uh, it really did look like out of uh, some horror movie. And uh, one of the cases I describe in the book uh, concerned a fellow who would have these violent dreams that were part of the disorder, usually relating to uh, some kind of attack, either by people or animals. And in one instance, he was trying to get this skunk out of, out of the tent that he was dreaming that he was sleeping in. And so he was pulling really hard on this skunk, but in reality, it turned out he was pulling on his wife's long hair. <laughs> and so, you know, if she... If she didn't get out of that situation, who knows what, what might have happened. So in cases like that, people really do need to, to seek out help because uh, oftentimes it's the person that they're sleeping with that uh, bears the brunt of some of these things. Sure. Let's talk more about sleep paralysis. This is something that I don't ever recall experiencing, so I've had a little trouble understanding it. Can you define it for us in in simple layman's terms? What exactly is sleep paralysis? Sure. And just to start off by saying it's actually pretty common. I think something like 40 to 70% of people will have at least one experience of it in their lifetime. But there's all different degrees of it. So on the, the most basic level, what happens is you wake up in your bed, but you cannot move except for your, your eyes, which aren't really going, <laughs> going anywhere. And your breathing, to some degree, is, is still functioning, of course. But your body is essentially completely frozen. And it's thought neurologically that this is kind of like an, an REM or rapid eye movement dream state that falls out of order so that it, it kind of superimposes onto the waking state. So... That can play out as just sort of this mild paralysis that lasts just for a few seconds and the person pulls out of it, or it can go into a deeper state where the person in, in sleep paralysis starts to see an entity appearing in the room and that can even be attacked by this. This is the whole lore of the incubus and the succubus that goes back to antiquity. So... It can also be a precursor to things like um, lucid dreaming or out-of-body experiences. So it's, it's a very curious gateway, but oftentimes I think it's extremely frightening to people because it is just a terrifying experience not to be able to move at all, and yet to be completely awake, your eyes are open, you're looking in your actual bedroom, and... And then if you see one of these beings, it, it's really, uh, I think, in, in times past when people didn't know the medical explanation, you can understand how a lot of this, how this, a lot of this supernatural lore built up over time. You mentioned how common it is. 40 to 70 percent of the population will have this experience at least once. But do we know what causes it? What's, what's the root cause for this condition? Well, there are different theories about it. Um, the neuroscience explanation would just say it's, it's an out-of-sequence glitch. Uh, we sleep in a typical pattern. There's three stages of, of deep or slow-wave sleep that gets deeper and deeper, and then you go into REM, or rapid eye movement. That's where we have the narrative dream cycle that we're all so familiar with. So it's this idea that there's something goes haywire and that's what causes the, the experience. Now, if you were to look at it in a more paranormal way, you might say, well, perhaps I'm in this unusual brain state and maybe that makes these kind of astral entities more accessible to me that I normally wouldn't 
be able to see or, or interact with almost this idea that we've placed ourselves in this unusual state that we're not normally in, and so we're, we're able to access these other dimensional beings that perhaps are around us all the time. We're just not, not aware of them. So it's kind of like a parallel track to, to view these experiences. Is there any way to combat something like sleep paralysis? Anything you can do to get yourself out of this habit, if you will? There, there's a variety of, of things. Uh, typically, sleep paralysis is associated with things like sleep deprivation, like you're not getting enough sleep to start with. And it almost always occurs when you're lying on your back. And what might happen is someone doesn't start off sleeping on their back, but they might move into that position at some point, kind of like how I was saying about my legs turning perpendicular. So Mm -hmm. someone could move uh, without their awareness during sleep. And there's um, kind of a do-it-yourself workaround if if that is a recurrent problem that you're having where you could like sew a tennis ball right in in the back of your uh t-shirt or pajamas and so if you should end up lying on your back at some point during sleep with having that ball there you'd be like ah <laughs> and you'd you'd move out of that position so that is uh is one way to to circumvent it um one thing i ran across that i kind of uh thought was intriguing was this daredevil subculture. Some people on Reddit were talking about how they're actually trying to court these sleep paralysis experiences to to get the experience of this utter horror and terror. I uh, quoted a guy who was in training to um, to go um, be a soldier, and so he he described himself as, you know, just a kid from the suburbs that hadn't really faced any real dangers, so he thought that Meeting up with some kind of sleep paralysis demon would be would be a fitting uh, rehearsal for for perhaps even uh, scarier experiences in real life. Lex, let's talk about parasomnias. These are physical or emotional abnormalities that can accompany sleep. Let's talk about sleepwalking. Why exactly do people sleepwalk? Do we know the reason? Typically, it's thought that uh, what happens is that something is waking them up, that they have what's called a lowered arousal threshold. So in other words, like say an airplane flies by while you're sleeping or your uh, sleeping partner accidentally nudges you, most people wouldn't wake up from that. But someone who's prone to sleepwalking, that can jar them partially awake. So it's this idea that I was talking about before where they might get up and start moving around, but the neocortex, the part that governs rational thought and memory, that part's still asleep, but they're moving around and potentially doing things that, um, that they're, they're not really aware of and, and, and under just some kind of subconscious level. Right. When people are sleepwalking, are their eyes open or closed? They're open, and that is one of the freaky aspects about it, because they can often have that kind of glassy, zombie-type stare. So if you're seeing someone like that, it it can really be unnerving. Uh, A friend of mine told me a story that um, when he was growing up in the 70s, his parents were going through a divorce, and so his mom allowed him to stay up and watch Johnny Carson with him, and they lived in a split-level home in New Jersey. Well, one night they were watching the TV, and they look up on the stairs, and it's his twin sisters, and they're walking arm-in-arm, arm, but they have that glassy stare. They're both sleepwalking together. Mm. So he said it was, it was just like that scene out of The Shining yeah. with, those, with those twins. And it, it kind of highlights the... Um, the idea that sleepwalking is often a genetic and, uh, and occurs uh, more frequently in children. And one of the speculations about that is that it may have something to do with the development of the central nervous system isn't completely developed, so that might be why they have the lowered arousal threshold. 
any other strange cases of sleepwalking that you've become aware of through your research? There was one that uh, I kind of got a kick out of. Uh, there was a 77-year-old man named James Currens, and he sleepwalked into a swampy pond near his home in Palm Harbor, Florida. Wow. And when he, when he woke up, he found himself chest deep stuck in mud, and there were several gators kind of <laughs> starting to swarm around him. Wow. So <laughs> he went from uh, dreaming to, you know, an absolute waking nightmare. And luckily, he'd, he'd taken his cane with him when he went out sleepwalking, and it was near the pond, so he was able to latch onto that and start swatting the gators away while um, his, his screams woke up the neighbors who, who called the police, and he, uh, he uh, got out okay and didn't get chomped on. And there's a case that intrigued me uh, from 2005 um, when a teenage girl was discovered on top of a 130-foot crane in London one night in the summer. And at first, the authorities thought, oh, this is a, a suicide attempt, and um, she must be thinking about jumping. But then when they looked more closely, they realized she was curled up sound asleep. So somehow she had climbed onto this crane while asleep. So it, re it really shows that people can can do these almost superhuman feats that they wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do or wouldn't think to do while they're awake. And in her case, they, they were able to find relatives that um, called her mobile phone, which she had on her, and that woke her up without startling her, and so she was, she was rescued okay. Yeah, so there's no fear, there's no inhibition. No, I think that those are things that are, are typically turned off in the um, the rational part of the brain that's that's still asleep, but a lot of motor functions are working quite well. Where people can drive cars, there's a case of someone uh, even like flying a helicopter. So there, wow. certain things, certain motor skills seem to to be on like a different pathway of the brain. Lex, one final question on the subject of sleepwalking. We've heard this for years. I don't know if it's a myth. I don't know if it's true. But you always hear, you know, don't ever wake up a sleepwalker. Is that true, false, or somewhere in between? Well, I think that that notion comes from this sort of indigenous or traditional people's idea that our soul travels outside of the body when we're asleep, so that if you wake up someone while sleepwalking, their soul might be lost. But aside from, from that point of view, I think it is better to be very gentle if you're dealing with someone that's sleepwalking and try to, try to just uh, be super relaxed and, and not jarring in any way as, as the best way to just try to get, get them back to bed. We'll continue our conversation this second hour with the author of Nightmare Land, Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. The author is Lex Nover, somebody that you perhaps know for his uh, association, uh, Coast to Coast AM, longtime web producer for that program over the last 17 years. Um, Lex, before our break at the top of the hour, I, I tried to ask you about your, your nickname, Lone Hood, but we lost our internet and phone connection. Uh, nobody's fault, just one of those freak things. Uh, I'm someone who's fascinated by nicknames. So Lex Lone Hood Nover, what does that mean? Well, Lone Hood is kind of an artistic uh, moniker that I uh, started using when I was uh, an artist and photographer in San Francisco in the 90s. And then I started to get into freelance writing and kept that as uh, as my name, and I got a grant from the San Francisco Chronicle to create a web magazine uh, called Offbeat that explored a lot of uh, eccentric culture and strange things going on in and around San Francisco. And so I was kind of using the name for that, and then I started writing for After Dark, the magazine affiliated with Coast to Coast at that time, and was and was using that name. So really, it just um, I just decided to give use the given family name when uh, 
when I um, did this uh, nonfiction book. And it is right there on the uh, the the cover of the book as well. So it's it's almost an unofficial name for you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your website and some of the topics uh, that you cover there. I'd I'd mentioned before the break that uh, it's it's a little bit different in terms of the URL. It's www.nightmare.land. Uh, for those who go to the website, what can they find? Well, thanks for for making note of my uh, my unusual domain uh, name. <laughs> there, when I was setting up the website, I, I was surprised to discover that there are a million different domains that they've introduced uh, in recent times. And this one I thought was kind of amusing to use it in tandem with Nightmare because it's actually dot land is associated with real estate. So I guess nobody wants to uh, have a condo complex called Nightmare dot <laughs> right. land. But since it, the full title of my book is Nightmare Land, I thought it was kind of cool to... Uh, have have the domain actually be part of the, the book title. And um, on the website, uh, I've got some of the artwork that's uh, the illustrations that are featured in the book. That's one of the uh, fun, fun things about the website. Uh, one of the artists, Jason Jam, did about five illustrations and uh, things like of the sleep paralysis episode. And he's got a cool sort of graphic novel type style. And there's a media page where you can uh, listen to a clip from the audio book. Um, an actor named Neil Helligers did the narration and did a really fantastic job, I think. It's uh, audio books seem to really be going gangbusters these days in the, the podcast era. And it seems like a lot of people would rather listen to a book than read it. So I was really happy that uh, my publisher was, was up for doing the audio book. No, that's terrific, and we certainly hope that um, the book does very well and it's gotten some very good early reviews. A, a number of topics I'd like to cover during this second hour. Let's talk about sleep deprivation. What happens when people go for very long periods without sleep? Now, right off the top, we might think that's not a good thing, that's not healthy, but is there some value to actually depriving oneself of sleep? It's a controversial area. There's, there's one British consciousness researcher named Tony Wright who would argue that there is. He wrote a book called Left in the Dark, and he presents, he co-wrote the book, I should say, but he presents the theory that sometime in the dim past, the two brain hemispheres of humans didn't separate into functions, separate functions, and over time, the left or rational side became, as it became dominant, it ended up damaging our perception of our, of our inner world and our emotions, and those are associated with the right side of the brain. So he conducted these, I guess you'd call them sleep fasting experiments. One of his best known ones was uh, set, he set up in a, a bar, his favorite bar in Cornwall on a webcam so people could watch him over an 11-night period going without sleep as he drank tea and uh, had like kind of a, a vegan diet. But according to Wright, what happens when you put yourself through these uh, sleep deprivation periods, that causes the left side of the brain just to sort of go to sleep on its own while the right side can become more dominant. And for him, that meant having powerful spiritual experiences, and he had access to, vivid access to childhood memories and things that had been blocked from his, his conscious memory. So it really was um, a very uh, interesting experiment, not something that most people would want to endure, because I, I detail in my chapter how sleep deprivation has been used as a form of torture yeah. over the years, and it really can just completely knock the stuffing out of a person. So, um, but as far as uh, Wright's research, it, it's an interesting correlation with some uh, birds and mammals. Um, for instance, uh, whales and, and some um, birds, they, when they go on long excursions, 
in the, in the sea or the air, half of their brain will go to sleep, and the other half keeps an eye out for predators and whatever maintenance needs to be done on their journeys. So, so these animals have really perfected this idea of, of having one hemisphere go to sleep at a time. 11 days and nights without sleep. I can't even fathom that. I, I would fall down after two days. Yeah, it, it, uh, for me, it's just even like one day <laughs> yes. I don't get full sleep. But I think there's some acclimation that goes on when you're, when you're doing these, these long stretches. And for a time in the late 50s and 60s, it became one of those stunts that DJs were doing uh, kind of in tandem with that whole era of people cramming into phone booths and, and uh, Volkswagen Beetles and yeah. things like that. So I, I write about uh, a DJ named Peter Tripp who, who did a stunt. He was set up in a glass booth at Times Square, and I think he, he went for 10 nights, and he was broadcasting his show live. And interestingly, whenever he had to go live, he seemed to really hold it up together and sounded perfectly in, in tune with his job. But as the experiment went on, he had a couple of um, minders, a couple of psychologists from uh, local college, and they described him as be- becoming super paranoid. At one point, he thought that they were undertakers rather than uh, psychologists, and they were there to, to take out his dead body. And he was seeing all sorts of critters, imaginary critters in, inside the studio, spiders crawling around in his shoes, and, uh, you know, it was really um, losing track of reality. But one thing that these um, psychologists noted about his hallucinations, that they seemed to mirror the same sleep cycle. So in other words, the period of REM sleep seemed to be sort of time, timed with what was when he was having his hallucinations in terms of uh, like a cyclical time frame. Within this subject of sleep deprivation, there's something called the legend of the black dog. What exactly is that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you guys have uh, a lot of truckers that listen, uh, as, as we do at, at Coast to Coast, being that on the, on the air late at night, and uh, uh, these folk are, are driving long distances. And here in America, there's some particularly long and monotonous highways that they have to tra- traverse. And the legend of the black dog is, is trucker lore for when, if you see a black dog on the side of the road, the first time you see it, it's like, okay, I wonder how that dog got there. But the second time you see it, that's a warning. That means you're dead tired and you need to pull over and get, get some shut-eye. Because if you see the black dog the third time, you could go into what's called micro-sleep. And that is... Uh, involuntary sleep that occurs for up to 30 seconds at a time where your body just just automatically goes into that mode because it's so sleep-deprived. And that's one thing if you're just sitting around at home, but imagine driving a huge truck on the highway and suddenly blacking out for 30 seconds. Yeah. That sounds like and, a good... Um, uh, that what's like also a interesting about the black dog is that it's steeped in lore from the UK going back about a thousand years, uh, legends of seeing a black dog at uh, crossroads and the sightings of them were often considered an omen of death. So it's interesting that, that there's this sort of across time and cultures, uh, recurrence of, of the black dog. You know, that sounds like a Twilight Zone episode. There was an episode with a young woman who's driving late at night and she keeps seeing the same man over and over, and it's actually an indication that she's died. So um, I don't know if that was an influence for Rod Serling, but there seems to be a connection there. Um, another area to talk about within sleep deprivation is something called fatal familial insomnia, which doesn't sound very good. Yeah, you could call it FFI for short. I had not heard of it at all until I started conducting my research, so I was rather surprised to find out about it, it uh, affected um, a 
family from Venice, Italy, for hundreds of years, and people didn't know what it was going back to Renaissance times. They thought, oh, this family is cursed, because when certain family members would get into their 50s, they would start to get into these modes where they could no longer sleep, and eventually they would just be in this kind of like Netherlands. They were neither asleep nor awake, and then they would eventually die because they were just not getting any any restful sleep at all. And so this went on for, for literally hundreds of years. There's a, a book out um, that documents this particular family's story. And as, as time went on in the, in the 1980s, uh, eventually some scientists started to get involved, and the, the case was cracked. It was found out to be a rare prion disease, which is um, what mad cow disease is. I don't know if you're familiar with prions. They're these really bizarre proteins that they're not considered to be alive, and yet they, they replicate kind of like viruses. So the, in, in the case of FFI, they were turning parts of the brain into this sort of Swiss cheese thing mm. and messing with the area that regulates sleep. So that's why people aren't, uh, when they have this, they're not able to, to fall asleep naturally. And um, so there's work being done now trying to, to, to um, treat prion diseases in general. There, there's several of them, like mad cow and, and FFI, so hopefully uh, a breakthrough is, uh, is around the corner. But uh, FFI is extremely rare. I think it's just something like 30 or 50 families that, that have the genetic disorder worldwide. It, but is, is I think any... it was it managed to keep replicating because it didn't hit people into their 50s, so yeah. they would often have kids and keep passing it down un, unbeknownst to them. So there's no current medication for this? This is something still in the research phase? Yeah, I, I write about a, a couple that um, were considered uh, like patient-slash-scientists because... Um, uh, a young woman scientist, uh, her mother came down with the disease, and then she took a genetic test and found out that she had she had it as well and yeah. could well come down with it. So she and her husband she both changed careers and became uh, uh, basically um, bioscientists, and they're they're working on a, a cure for her. So it's really kind of a dramatic story. Lex, uh, a topic that I really want to get into now, sleepwalk murders, something I'd never previously heard of. Uh, this is cases where people are actually said to commit murders while in their sleep. Why would somebody do that? Why would this happen? Well, it's an extremely rare occurrence, I should say right off the bat, uh, according to my research there's maybe around 70 cases worldwide, although that doesn't necessarily include cases that involve benzodiazepines and different medications that sometimes cause confused states and, and crimes associated with that. But in terms of these sleepwalk murders, I think what's possibly going on is because the neocortex, the part that I mentioned governs rational thought and, and various processes that are, are uh, kind of guide our consciousness during the waking state are asleep. And what could be holding sway is this more ancient part of the brain. You could perhaps call it the reptilian part that is geared around this kind of fight or flight response. And so in the sleepwalking state, it's possible that someone might misinterpret um, an activity as a threat and then violently lash out. So it's not something that they're just sort of motivated to do uh, just spontaneously. It's, it's a reaction to someone else. That's what's generally thought yeah. in cases where where people have, have genuinely be, been considered to be conducting these crimes while, while asleep. There's certainly cases that have gone to trial and have been controversial, which left people to wonder, okay, is this, this some concocted defense, kind of like a Twinkie defense sort of thing? So um, some of the cases that I looked at 
had that kind of feeling, whereas other ones, they were able to convincingly demonstrate that this person had a history of sleep disorders. They were hooking them up on the polysomnogram and showing abnormalities and um, evidence, in other words, that they, that they did have sleepwalking episodes. And one thing that's curious that I, I also address in, in my chapter on psychic attacks is this idea that there is always some type of consciousness that's going on. And I hadn't realized that before I started my research. I thought that the deeper sleep states, which is actually when sleepwalking occurs, that's kind of like a dreamless sleep. But actually, that's not the case. There's always some sort of content. It may not have the narrative type stuff that we associate with REM, the dreams that we remember sometimes when we wake up, but this um, level of content that's happening in, in slow wave sleep is perhaps interacting with, with the sleepwalker and, and in uh, what's called night terrors, which is a kind of nightmare that occurs outside of REM in, in this um, slow wave sleep, and often people describe these um, kind of horrific scenarios where they're being chased by uh, beings and uh, outlandish entities like giant spiders. I want to get into the night uh, terrors in a moment, but just go back to the sleepwalk murders for a second. Uh, you mentioned some some cases that have actually gone to trial. Give us a couple of the best-known cases involving an actual murder or attempted murder. Sure. Probably the most notorious case is, is that of Kenneth Parks. He's a, a young Canadian man who, in 1987, uh, had gotten into some trouble with embezzlement and was was feeling remorseful and, and losing sleep over this situation. And he was planning to tell his in-laws about it uh, the next day before he, he went to, to sleep. But what happened was he, he went to sleep, and then while allegedly sleepwalking, he drove 14 miles to his in-laws' home where he took out a tire iron from his trunk and then also used a, a kitchen knife from the in-laws' home and uh, viciously attacked both of the in-laws, and, and he killed, killed his mother-in-law. And right after that, he showed up at the police station admitting that he, he had c- committed these crimes, but he seemed completely baffled and bewildered. And one of the things that was used in evidence in his trial to back up the sleepwalking claims was that he had cut through all 10 tendons of his fingers when he was stabbing the victims with the kitchen knife, but he was not aware of the intense pain. They called it uh, a kind of dissociative analgesia. Really? So you can imagine something like this is very controversial because it's hard to see how someone could be viciously attacking people and not awaken, let alone driving 14 miles in a car while asleep. But in, in this case, they, they, they had uh, a lot of these cases end up being sort of a, a battle of the, the sleep experts and the sleep disorder specialists. And he had some people that argued very convincingly in his favor, and like I said, they were able to back it up with these um, various tests, and he had a long history that was known in the community of, of having um, sleepwalking episodes, and so he actually was found not guilty, and he got off scot-free. The um, Canadian courts ended up uh, asking for an appeal, and it went all, all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court, who... Um, back to the original verdict, but it certainly calls into question the whole criminal code and what we consider to be these categories of voluntary and involuntary. It's very black and white. It's either one or the other, so it makes you kind of wonder to what degree is someone culpable, even if they are uh, asleep, as it were. Has there ever been a case, Lex, where someone had absolutely no recollection of 
committing a crime or committing a murder. They, they just didn't remember any of it. Yes. One of the other uh, well-known sleepwalk murder cases was uh, 10 years later in 1997. There was a Phoenix man named Scott Slater, and he ended up stabbing his wife at the um, family swimming pool while his kids were sleeping upstairs. And during the commotion, a neighbor uh, went outside and peered over the fence. And at that point, he saw Scott pushing his wife into the swimming pool and drowning her. And that, at that point, he, he called the cops. But when they got there, Scott claimed to have no memory of, of committing the murder and was just completely shocked by the whole thing. What was the verdict on that one? He was found guilty in that case. And one of the pieces of evidence, this is another uh, example of where you have the battling uh, sleep specialists. And I think what happened was because they had the eyewitness testimony of the neighbor, at one point the family dog had come out and Scott had kind of shushed the dog and the sleep expert for for the um, prosecution said well if he was really in a state of sleepwalking he wouldn't have he wouldn't have heard the dog or wouldn't have reacted that way there was kind of a checklist that they had for a number of his behaviors that didn't fit the profile of someone sleepwalking yet there was something about that case as I looked at it that it did seem so unlikely that this the couple by all reports was, had a loving marriage and there was no motive for him to have killed her. And the idea that he would commit this savage murder while his kids are sleeping upstairs, it just, it defies any kind of reasoning. Yeah. So it, it, it seemed to me like it might've been a case where he was sleepwalking initially. And then at some point maybe did, did wake up or, or perhaps was in some kind of fugue state. Let's talk about the nightmare realm. A few moments ago, you mentioned night terrors. Night terrors, nightmares, are they the same thing or are they different? Well, what's different about them is nightmares occur during REM sleep, usually towards the end of our dream cycle, and they tend to be part of a long, complicated dream, and the person will be so terrified about what's going on, they'll wake up out of, out of the dream. Whereas night terrors occur during this earlier stage of sleep where the, it's, it's not part of a long narrative dream. It's more just like some scary thing that's frightening a person. For instance, uh, there was a case of um, a fellow who was known as the sleep runner. A lot of these things kind of combine different um, sleep disorders together. So he, he saw like this um, vision of this blue figure kind of coming down from the ceiling and heard this narrator in his head say, if you don't get out of your room by the time the figure hits the floor, you're dead. And so hmm. he just panics and jumped out uh, a second-story bedroom and climbed down a tree. And at that point, he was covered in blood and was running around the neighborhood, and he had a number of repeated episodes like that, so he had earned the name of the, the sleep runner. But it's this idea that of the night terror is a different kind of uh, episode than uh, a narrative dream that we associate with nightmares. And, and just as a side note, what's kind of interesting about the word nightmare is that it actually, until the 1800s, a nightmare referred to sleep paralysis, not the uh, anxiety dreams that we associate it with now. Hmm. So that was kind of surprising to me because, in fact, one of the books that I ordered for my research was uh, sort of an old tome from around the turn of the um, end of the 19th century, and I thought, oh, I'm going to get a book about uh, nightmares. It turned out it was a book about sleep paralysis. Wow, that's interesting. Um, do people scream in their sleep? Uh, you know, you sometimes hear people joke about that. Does that actually happen? 
I, I think with night terrors, yes. There was one case that, uh, while terrifying, I thought there was. It was also a little bit amusing, where a, a woman was was being haunted by a ghost, as, as she explained it, and so she she screamed so loud that she actually hurt her larynx. But as, as she explained later, that it was her screams that scared away the ghost, and if she <laughs> hadn't done it, she would have been. Who knows what by the yeah. by the attacking entity? What about fever dreams? Uh, that's a topic I'm not familiar with. What exactly are fever dreams? Fever dreams are a particular kind of dream that people who are running a high fever or, or have a um, fairly um, extensive illness might experience, and there's a kind of commonality to them that I thought was intriguing. And, and what that is is these distortions of time and space. I read uh, numerous descriptions where someone, for instance, would imagine themselves being extremely tiny, like their whole body would be like the size of the head of a pin, whereas there would be something else in the room that would just be ginormous, like some huge chess piece that would be moving incredibly slowly and 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 the sensation of it was just completely awful that this this um this slow moving giant thing is inexorably moving closer and closer to them and and somehow it's it's just the most unbearable experience and it's it's thought that the reason that people have these kinds of nightmares while they're running a fever is that perhaps the parts of the brain are overheating yeah. and that's causing these, these kinds of distortions. Lex, final area of conversation. I want to talk about psychic attacks, which you referenced a few minutes ago. Do you believe that we are vulnerable to outside forces when we go to sleep? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question. And one thing I ran across in my research on sleep paralysis were cases where people described, instead of when they went into sleep paralysis of slowly seeing a a demonic or malevolent entity uh, form in the room, when they woke up paralyzed, they actually saw a figure that was already laying on top of them and, and feeding on their energy in a way. And these descriptions usually said that the the foreign entity seemed quite surprised that the person had woken up, almost like they were just there to feed and weren't expecting any any interruptions or or to to be sort of caught in the act, as it were. So it really um, it made me wonder if there are these paraphysical type entities, almost like a hidden ecosystem that could be interacting with us, particularly in this this stage of sleep I was talking about before, this slow, slow wave or deep sleep that we have almost no recollection of. There's a case called the Devil's Dummy. What exactly is that? That concerned a clergyman known as Father X, and he was uh, staying at a monastery and, and had been having uh, a lot of out-of-body experiences that he'd been communicating with some psychical researchers about. And in this instance, it's a, I consider it to be a form of hypnagogia, which I have a chapter on, and that refers to episodes that occur just before falling asleep or just after waking up. And in his case, right after he awoke, he heard some mumbling off to the side of his bed, and he saw this little man that kind of looked like a ventriloquist dummy who seemed to be speaking this unidentifiable language. So Father X got out of bed, and he, he tried to grab the, the figure by the foot, but when he tugged on him, the little man bounced off the ceiling, almost like a rubber ball. <laughs> and then when he tried to grab him again, the, the little man appeared on the other side of the bed, and then he turned away and uttered these three short but very distinct phrases. We have him. Christ is burning. The hummingbird men have him. So Father Axe had not believed in a literal devil, 
thought thought of that as like a mythological figure, but after this experience, he started to wonder. That's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, good note to finish uh, our conversation. Our guest has been Lex Nover, author of the new book, Nightmareland Travels at the Borders of Sleep, Dreams, and Wakefulness. Lex, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and best of luck with the book. Thanks so much, Bruce. I really appreciate uh, being on the show, and it was a pleasure chatting with you. Tomorrow night on the program, our uh, guest will be, uh, well, actually, we'll have three guests. Uh, They're all the hosts of the Holzer Files, Dave Schrader, the investigator, Cindy Kazaa, the psychic, and Shane Pittman, the equipment technician. They're reopening the case files of America's first ghost hunter, Dr. Hans Holzer, on the Travel Channel's new show. So that's coming up on the Thursday night edition. A reminder that you can follow this program at our website, beyondrealityradio.com. This and all the other shows are recorded and archived. Our chat room, J.V. Johnson on YouTube, Facebook, you can follow us there, at Beyond Reality Radio. Also follow us on Snapchat and Instagram. And if you'd like to follow me, uh, my Facebook page, uh, Bruce Markison's Ghostly Gallery. Just go to at Ghostly Gallery, and we'd love it if you like and follow that page, at Ghostly Gallery. That'll do it for tonight's edition of Beyond Reality Radio. Have a good night, everybody. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.